Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. She is, I want to call her a change maker, connector, behind the scenes person doing all of the things, international influencer, impact strategist, Biden-Harris National Black Engagement Advisor. And uh, one of the pushers of this crowd act that we're going to talk about. Let me welcome back to the show, Ajwa Asamoah. Thank you so much for having me, sis. It's good to be back. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to I was, see you. I was um, last, I think it was last week or the week before, one more state added the crown act to its, uh, to its laws. Um, where, well, how many states so far have, uh, I'm going to give the right, HR 5309. How many is that the act HR five three zero nine? How many states are are currently uh, under this rule? So each state has its own bill number. So I don't have them all memorized. Okay. But what I can tell you is that thirteen states in total have either passed what we call the Crown Act or they have outlawed race based hair discrimination, which has been inspired by the Crown Act. So so far, thirteen states again, have outlawed race-based hair discrimination, multiple municipalities. We see things like resolutions um, that are passing at the local level and states where the bill hasn't passed. Uh, as you probably remember, it passed in the United States House of Representatives under the right. leadership of former Congressman Cedric Richmond uh, and leaders like now uh, Madam Secretary Marsha Fudge and, and Congresswoman uh, Barbara Lee and Ayanna Presley. Uh, Senator Cory Booker introduced it in the Senate. He has done so again this session, and it has been reintroduced by Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman. So I'm excited about the progress we've made since I first came on your show. To yeah, talk you, about you came on you when it was passing on. in New York. That was for and uh, you brought you know reinforcements with you. And at the time, you know, I thought it was ridiculous that people were being discriminated against for for the hair that comes out of their head, but. Clearly, people were being denied jobs, losing jobs, uh, you know, of course, being forced to change their hairstyle. Um, and and so what was the impetus for you getting involved and tell tell the folk how you got involved? Like, what was your role? Because you're not an elected official. So tell them tell them how how much power you have not being an elected official. Well, that's an important point. And we'll have to talk about, uh, you know, really leveraging our power as people. Uh, separate and aside from this particular conversation, but it started originally. So the idea of needing to actually take some action at the at the legislative level is something that then CBC Chairwoman Marsha Fudge uh, penned a letter to the then Secretary of Defense calling out the inherent bias in certain hairstyles with a proposed ban, the ones that you know we wear, which would mean that Black women would be disproportionately impacted. So it was her leadership as well as Congresswoman Barbara Lee uh, that was the first time that I am aware of where a legislator took action. Bringing it full circle, Essence Festival, where Black women gather and celebrate all that we are, beauty, brains, and everything in between. Uh, I was at a brunch that was hosted um, at Essence Festival in 2018, and there were a couple sisters who were talking about wanting to tackle this. One is an executive boss who sits in the seat where she can, you know, leverage financial resources, move around money. One is a marketing mastermind. Another is an engineer, but a strategist in terms of marketing. And then you have me who works at the intersection of policy and politics. So we originally had that conversation in the summer of 2018, met back in D.C. afterwards. 
and then talked about how I would develop the legislative strategy for the movement and to really lead uh, this movement on behalf of the Crown Coalition that was co-founded uh, by Dove and the National Urban League and the Western Center along poverty, uh, as well as uh, Color of Change. And so started building a coalition for it, figuring out who we need, where we need to go, how do you get folks on board, work with some dynamic lawyers, William Sherman and Sonny Harris to do the legal research, because I'm not a lawyer. And then everything came together and I determined, you know, who I would ask and in which states and members one by one, ranging from, you know, Senator, uh, then Senator Holly Mitchell, who voluntarily stepped up to do this, as well as former Assemblywoman uh, Tremaine Wright. We started in California and in, and in New York. And there's a squad that does PR and marketing and all that stuff. And here we are. And CROWN stands for creating, creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair Act. Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair Act. Did, that, did you come up with the acronym too? No, I did not come up with the acronym. I'm proud to be the All Things Racial Equity Champion that came up with the strategy for moving it. But actually, it was the senator's uh, scheduler who came up with the actual acronym, which really just goes to speak to the power of us moving collectively. So there are a number yeah. of obviously have, you know, joined the movement. Folks for the first time ever are contacting lawmakers, participating in hearings you know, testifying things that they were like, I never even knew I could do it. So it really um, reinforces the idea that one, elected officials work for us until we decide they don't. Uh, and then two, really owning our own lawmaking process because for too long, it's primarily been, in my experience, white public opinion that has informed public policy. And this is one of those cases where I see black folk nationwide really saying, no, black public opinion is also going to inform public policy. And this is just one of many examples of how we can do exactly that. You know, I, I look at the work that, that, that um, the coalition that, that y'all have built with the Crown Act. And for me, <clears throat> I think about the blueprint that y'all are using and how, how we get that blueprint to for, because you just said that y'all have folks who said, you know, I'm going to help you behind the scenes. So that means that you had a lot of people who said, I don't need the glory. I don't need to be in the press release, but I'm going to do this work. I'm going to put my, I'm going to bring my skills to the table. Like, how did you build that coalition? And what was the role that data played in it? Because I know that when you, when that y'all did a pretty intensive study, uh, data analysis about attitudes towards hair and, and lived experiences, particularly of black women versus, and then juxtapose it to, to what white women experienced as well. Um, and what does it mean for students too? Because I know way too many kids that this happens to. Well, thank you for that question. Um, I'm gonna to try to answer all of it. Uh, one in terms of the data piece, uh, Dove actually commissioned a study that was uh, carried out by the, by the sisters at Joy Collective. So there's a squad that I sort of refer to as the core four, the folk who were sitting there when we were developing the entire strategy. I lead the, again, legislative part, but this is a bigger push to acknowledge, you know, our whole, we're going to change the narrative, play on Karen's narrative around beauty. And the fact that the African aesthetic is beautiful, we're not going to keep enforcing these Eurocentric standards of beauty, that whether or not I want to wear my hair naturally like it is today, but blown out and bumped, or in a twist out like I wore it two weeks ago, or in locks, or in twists, or in braids, 
we reserve the right to do that. So data is critically important. The study really looked at people's perceptions about you know, how they felt they needed to show up in the workplace. And this was done with adults. And overwhelmingly reported that they felt like they needed to be mindful of their hair. You walk into the office and people are acting like you're a different person just because you decided to do something with your hair. And really acknowledging the beauty and versatility of Black hair is in part what this movement is about. But two, you talked about something that's near and dear to my heart, because this is one of a couple hats that I wear. And next week, no, this week, I am going away for a boot camp where I'm going to be training folks to do exactly this for the Congressional Black Caucus Institute. And that is really focusing on, one, training more political operatives, two, folks who want to run for office, because not everybody, like you said, needs to be in the front. We need people in the back who could actually make these moves. Sometimes you're more powerful in the back but you're also powerful in the front, but you said it, you hit the nail on the head when you're talking about a blueprint. So you identify the problem, you determine what the fix is, you figure out who and what you need in order to do it, you figure out how the issue was playing out, who's talking about it, who's not talking about it, and how the messaging is, and then you develop your plan accordingly. So you hit the nail on the head. So many people in some states, you know, I call in a lobbyist and other states, we don't. Um, so it's really about leveraging our collective power, all of our different skill sets to really get something done. But the same thing can be done for a number of different issues. You know, as you're talking, um, this boot camp, can anybody go to it? How, how, to, how does a person get to a boot camp where you're teaching them how to leverage their power? So for this particular boot camp, this is the one that the uh, Congressional Black Caucus Institute has been doing for uh, years and years and years. Uh, a member can nominate someone from their district. Uh, people can apply independently as well. So it's not just exclusively a member has to nominate you. But again, encouraging people to actually invest in you know their own public policy making process you call up your member and say, I want to be the one to go here. I'm thinking about running for office. Everything doesn't have to be, you know, running for Senate or for Congress. Right now we have a huge conversation and we won't, you know, again, another conversation, but we're talking about legalization of certain things, et cetera. Well, somebody needs to be a water and soil supervisor. Somebody needs to be on the commission determining what a social equity and a racial equity component you know, of these bills look like. So again, not everybody needs to run for U.S. Senate, but we need people at every single level who actually are prioritizing our issues and will approach the work in that way. The thing I love about the Crown Act is it reminds me of like APEC and these other lobbyists that, you know, people get in a room, they they craft legislation, they hand it to yes. their favorite congressperson. It's the same language, then they hand it over locally. It's the same language. There's uniformity, there's clarity. Everybody knows what the plan is. And it seems like we don't have enough of that. So I want to foster that, at least on this show, uh, to get more people in line with moving like that uh, so that we can get some stuff done. You got this done because four people sat in a room, made a determination. They divvied up the responsibilities of what was going to happen. Uh, you fast forward, Cedric Richmond proposes it in the House. So we got that. But all throughout the country, you have local municipalities and states adopting the same language. And they know what the acronym stands for. And bingo, bango, here we go. That is exactly right. Uh, some of the members of the coalition 
aside from you know our sororities and the links and the U.S. Black Chamber of, of uh, Commerce and the National Action Network, all your civil rights organizations. I call my friends who I work with, obviously wearing other hats, is that I'm getting ready to tackle race-based hair discrimination. Not one of them, literally not one of them said no. So you're talking about having a coalition of the Association of Black Psychologists and the National Bar Association, talking about mm -hmm. sorority incorporated and again, US Black Chambers of Commerce and really saying this is how this impacts all of us because it's really an issue of impacting all of us. We know that you know anti-Blackness is pervasive. We also know that for most of this country's existence, discrimination has been legal. We know that much of the discrimination has been government sanctioned. And so, you know, taking into account the fact that there have been countless cases where Black people have been discriminated against for wearing their natural hair and or protective styles, because that part is also really important, the braids, locks, twists, et cetera. Um, but, you know, racial discrimination in this form of hair discrimination comes with consequences. So people, you talk about folks having been fired and, and passed over for promotions and having offers of employment rescinded. So now you talk about my hair impacting my upward mobility of the individuals and the families who are uh, impacted. And to the brother's point, our students, our students, as I think about the work that I have done at the local, state and federal levels, I'm thinking about the student who was sent home in tears because she rocked braids that were deemed a violation of school rules. I'm thinking about a, a then boy, and I'm very intentional about using that language because the adultification of black children is a thing. But at the time, DeAndre Arnold was a high school student being told mm -hmm. to not participate in his graduation ceremony because of locks, for, which for him, given his father's identity, a display, you know, of his racial and, and ethnic part, that's crazy. And then the thing that, you know, many people who aren't, haven't experienced this or haven't had to think about their hair and, and the work setting or in a school place, a boy, a student wrestler in New Jersey being yeah. with, forced essentially to make a decision that no kid should have to make. So I got to either pass, uh, forfeit a match that I earned the right to participate in or sit here and have my locks cut and my identity attack on the spot. On the mat. That's in front of a crowd of people. In front of a crowd of people hyping them up. Like, yeah, let's go, let's do this. So everybody set that up. So again, wear a bunch of hats, but one of them happens to be as a licensed clinician and someone who started out spending my first half of my career in K-12 education. And so as a licensed clinician, as a therapist who was a practitioner and still hold the license, I share that only because. I can speak to, attest to, having witnessed the harm that these negative school climates and cultures can do and really understanding the, the psychological impact of being told essentially that the way you were born is not okay. That's something child, no adult, nobody should have to deal with because the, the damage to your, your self-esteem can be heavy uh, and long lasting and, and your perceptions of self-worth really can be impacted as well. So. We're not having it. Um, it's something that we're tackling. It, again, if you choose to blow it out like mine again, cool, rock it crinkly, braid it, twist it, bantu, not afro, do your thing. What we're fighting for is really the right to 
um, you know, preserving and protecting the right to rock our crowns how we see fit, challenging these Eurocentric standards of beauty, ensuring that our folks are not in environments where you feel like you have to go and put chemicals in your hair, toxic chemicals that we would have to go back to school and get a master's degree essentially to learn what they are or our babies to be comfortable in school. So what's next? What you we were talking about the Crown Act, we're talking about schools. What's next? What's the next thing that we get ready to tackle? Because we want to tackle it with you. Well, now just me speaking on my own behalf as someone again working at sort of the intersection of policy and politics, I am laser focused on ensuring that there is more equitable representation in every at every level of government. I shared this week, I'm going away uh, to a remote location in, 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 in Maryland. Uh, and I'm going to teach some folks how to, to do this thing that I do. Uh, but I'm also personally um, very invested, voluntarily organizing uh, folks and doing more of this sort of coalition building around the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Um, Crown Act isn't my first bill, not even my last. Um, I'm ensuring that um, we are passing bills that actually serve our people. And when necessary, I show up to fight against those that can be harmful. So again, leveraging the same blueprint, whatever the issue is, making sure our folks recognize that they actually have power. The way folks keep winning is because they can convince folks that we don't have any. And if that was the case, we wouldn't see the voter suppression. So we actually do have power. We just got to leverage it. How do we get this George Floyd um, Justice Act passed? Like, what do we need to do? All right. It's there. You, you, we got it to a point that it's been presented in the House. Uh, it's been presented in the Senate. What do we need to do to make that go through? So I think um, doing exactly what, what you do. One thing you said uh, when I was coming to New York to kick it with you for a bit is you say you are a conductor and that you are driving the train and putting people together. A lot of people, in my, again, personal experience, don't actually know what's entailed in the legislative process. They took out engagement in so many of our schools, so folks don't know how that something becomes a, an act, a bill to an actual law. So really, I think from where you sit is in educating people about what it is. People throw around language like, you know, qualified immunity, and people don't know what it is. So bringing on thought leaders, the people who are actually out there doing the work, not the people who, you know, sit behind an, an ivory, you know, desk or tower sometimes, but the people who are out, actually out there doing the work to break down what this means. Sometimes we get so fancy with our language, we forget, we just want people to know what it is. So if you're throwing around qualified immunity, well, what is that? Now, we'll say this, they're still negotiating. The people who are leading the, the negotiations who have been, you know, sort of um, identified by their respective parties, Senator Cory Booker in the uh, Senate on the Dem side, as well as Senator uh, Tim Scott on the Republican side, and then uh, Karen, uh, Representative Karen Bass in terms of the House. It is not advantageous always to negotiate in public. Sometimes you, again, understanding power negotiations, sometimes you lose your power when you do too much up front. But overwhelmingly, elected officials want to be reelected. Not always, but typically, they want to keep their jobs. And so the thing that I keep drilling in people's head is you work for me unless and until we decide you don't. 
So really what I can tell you for certain is that if you call a representative's office in the United States Congress, there will be a record of it. So if you call and say, I am Karen Hunter from such and such district and I vote, you can want to add a little extra spice, be like, check my vote file. I vote. I want to see this bill pass because sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's not even a matter of red or blue per se in, in terms of partisanship. It really is, I'm trying to be reelected. And so if too many people start telling me that they want to see this thing, you know, pass or not pass, et cetera, et cetera, they keep a record of it. Ain't no pieces of coming in where there are no records of it. If you send an email, somebody knows of it. And if you call, somebody will keep a record of it. So sometimes it is a matter of leveraging your voice. I don't want to, you know, trivialize or even minimize how, you know, hectic the process can be, but making sure your voice is heard is one of the, the best things that we can do that I don't always, not in a finger wagging way, I don't always see our people doing. And I think it's because sometimes we don't necessarily recognize all of the power, but there are certainly people who are on the ground doing the work and amplifying the work. So I certainly don't want to dismiss the fact that some of our people also are. Ajwa, you are a power player. We're going to keep having this dialogue off mic, on mic. Uh, the things that need to get done in this one, uh, this George Floyd uh, bill definitely needs to go through. So thank you for that uh, bit of blueprint. Thank you for being here today. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.